0: It's not just time to get
1: away, it's time to travel with Anita, from around the world to across Georgia. She covers it all. Let's Let's now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, food and travel, the two go together so well. I mean, it's what we do when we travel. And for most of us, we choose where we go based on the food. (laughs) Now, you guys know I do, because what do I talk about a lot on the show? Food. And on my last show, I had Doc Bill on to talk about food maps. So fascinating. Where various foods originated and how they made their way to other parts of the rural. And parts of the world that sometimes we think that's where they originated. And when we think about what I call the food basket, I mean, all those things that we love to eat, it could be pretty amazing to hear where the foods originated and how we associate them with a completely different destination. And there's so much history in foods. I mean, history that tells us about people, places and of course the culture of that destination that we so love to visit and the food also that we look forward to enjoying while we're there now after our last show i received several comments about the topic so i asked doc bill to come back on the show this week and let's talk specifics about some of the foods so doc bill thanks for coming back and joining me because last time you gave us some very very informative understandings about how food travels. So not only do people travel, you know, I talk about us traveling all the time, but food's out there traveling as well. So let's start talking about, um, about everything here. We think of people traveling, but as I just mentioned, so does food. It's so much a part of our culture that is created because the food has traveled along with the people, bringing with it their culture and their ways of preparing some of the foods. So one of the things that you mentioned that I found fascinating is that collard greens are not from Africa. So if you don't mind, I'd love to start with that because that's actually one of my favorite foods. And it's a food product that is so closely related to African-American cooking or what we sometimes call soul food. So tell me more about what greens then are native to Africa
0: yeah, that's a, that's that's actually an interesting statement. When people hear that, when people think of greens, they think of the greens from the Middle East collars, kale, and mustards, and all those varieties are from the Middle East. Uh, and their large, their families or their their names to describe families of local greens that people have from a region. In Africa, particularly when I say Africa, I'm referring to Sub-Saharan Africa. You have a variety of greens. You have some things greens from uh, Kenya. You have um, some people refer to it as uh, spinach which is actually not a spinach, but it's a green that you find in certain places from Ghana. Um, also, okra. Okra itself is, if we think about the, the great pod, the seed pod, but actually the, the, the leaves of the okra plant can also be used as a green.
1: And what about the flour?
0: Flour is also edible. It can be stuffed or it can be um, sautéed and eaten as is. The whole okra plant is edible. Even the roots can be um, mashed and made into a stew. You can take the seeds and dry them out and use them as, um, as, a, as a substitute for, even for coffee. Oh, wow. So it's an interesting process with that. Uh, okra has a, a relative no Molokai, spelled M-O-L-O-K-H-I-A. It's from Egypt. And it has that musculin, that sliminess present in the leaves. And this um, plant here, you just eat the leaves. You don't eat the, um, the fruit of it.
1: That's very fascinating. But I want to go back though, because you said we can eat the flowers by stuffing them. So what are some of the things you might stuff an okra flower with? You can stuff with other vegetables.
0: You can stuff it with meat. You can stuff it with fish. People stuff it with what they have. Or they can just throw the okra flowers in the stew itself and add flavor to the stew itself and help as a thickener.
1: And if you're stuffing it, say, with vegetables or with meats, are you frying it? Are you boiling it? Baking it? How is it then prepared?
0: It can be baked. It can be most likely it's used just thrown in the stew. Or you can also fry it as well. You see more frying of it here, but in Africa, usually it's thrown into stews and dishes. Uh, okra, as I said before, is an incredible um, vegetable. Uh, the longer the pod gets in um, most varieties of okra, the tougher it is. There are a few varieties where it doesn't. But uh, people usually pick okra at the smaller size and use it in dishes. And it's usually pounded very hard to, to increase the mucinous or the sliminess of it. And that's adding to stews and dishes. It serves as a thickener and also gives nutritional benefits. and also helps, to, um, helps with digestion.
1: But, you know, it's funny that you say that it's pounded sometimes, you know, to actually add to that sliminess, because that is also some of the things that you hear people say that they don't like about okra.
0: Well, they don't. They, um, when people think of okra, they don't think of um, the sliminess of it. a Matter of fact, here in this country, we tend to want to have okra fried and uh, we do things we can to decrease the amount of sliminess in the food. But a lot of places around the world, people like that slimy texture. They do things to, to magnify it and make it even more prominent in the foods they eat.
1: Well, you know, food and those foods that you enjoy, a lot of it is about texture, so I can see how it could be both ways. But I want to dig a little deeper with okra because okra is such a big part also too of what we consider African-American food. It's prepared in so many ways and gumbo and Louisiana in particular. I mean, gumbo is the French word for okra and it's called gumbe. I think it's spelled G-O-M-B-O uh, It's the French word for okra. So that makes sense that such a heavy French influence in the Louisiana area, they would also have something that is closely related to okra, since it's the French name.
0: Yeah, some people, in, particularly in Louisiana, won't even refer to a dish as, as um, gumbo unless it has okra in it. But a lot of gumbos don't have to have okra in it as well. It's just the method in which it's cooked. But again, it adds that great flavor to a dish. And okra by itself, particularly in West Africa and other parts, is eaten um, by itself as a principal vegetable with few other things added to it here in the new world we always think of okra having his cousin tomatoes but if you go along the um coast the not eastern coast of the united states where you have a lot of the um what they refer to as the uh the geechi people or the people the slaves that were on the coastal area the will have a lot of dishes like such as okra and shrimp where the primary um dish vegetable is okra and you don't have tomatoes with it and people like that flavor of the okra by itself without uh, without tomatoes okra can be stored dry you can take the plant and dry it out and then the dry okra is used in the cooking that's in um, places which don't have refrigeration that's another advantage of the okra plant
1: but now i heard you also say that the okra seeds can also be used as a substitute for coffee but let's talk a little bit about coffee because africa and coffee you know those two you know that's where coffee originated although a lot of times we think of south and central america being where coffee originated
0: uh that's true one more um fact about 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 okra the plant um itself has a lot of medicinal uses and people use it a lot of times for help as a aid digestion they use the seeds as a as a coffee substitute uh coffee itself is a plant that um came from ethiopia the plant basically um the folklore is they saw goats eating the um coffee beans and beginning to fall over and act like they were drunk and from that um they utilize the, um, the coffee beans in order to um, produce the drink, to produce coffee. Ethiopians have a whole ceremony known as the coffee ceremony where coffee is taken and it's produced. The beans are um, processed, they're dried, and then they're uh, pounded and roughly ground. And from, it, from which uh, it's boiled with water and um, they have a whole coffee ceremony and people um, take it and usually it's eaten with some sort of grain most commonly now was popcorn back but years ago there was no popcorn because corn was introduced to um ethiopia other grains were used
1: that is fascinating uh to to think of uh (laughs) coffee being served with popcorn now did they use a dairy
0: uh, most places around the world, coffee is usually um, drunk without a dairy. It's mostly in the West that we see coffee drink um, drinking drink with a dairy product. Dairy was very sparingly used. More modern, um, now, dairy is more readily available. But most Ethiopian coffee is you drink it without dairy.
1: And can you go to maybe Ethiopian restaurant and, and see that whole coffee ceremony? We think of you know Japan as having their tea ceremonies, but it sounds like there's a coffee ceremony.
0: There is a coffee ceremony. There's a whole system and religious implications with it that they have with the ceremony, and um, it's it's you know it, it, it gives gets reverence to it gets reverence to the um, product itself and also reverence to to the whole human idea of human beings being together and some sort of deity. Uh, coffee is probably one of the most use, um, usable um beverages in the world. And Ethiopian coffee, the varieties of Ethiopian coffee, are some of the most highly prized coffees in the world. People always think of um, coffee coming from whether it's Kona coffee or Blue Mountain coffee or Columbia Premium coffee beans. But some of the coffees, the coffees coming from Ethiopia, are some of the most highly prized, sought after coffee beans in the world.
1: Well, you've got me wanting a cup of coffee right now. So let's stop and take a break. Maybe we can grab a coffee. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about some of the specifics of the food map and how we can enjoy these foods when we travel here on Travel with Anita and Friends.
0: My window. Mm-hmm. Do you know something? Do you know something
1: that I don't know? And he walked his days under African sky. We have our local foods, so we love to try and we love to try them when we're traveling how are they prepared in one destination may be completely different from how they're prepared in another destination welcome back to travel with anita and friends now doc bill is back with me sharing some of our favorite foods and he's giving us some really good pointers that will help us when we're in these destinations so that we know what we need to need to order so doc bill welcome back to the show now we were talking in the last segment about some of the foods that are native to Africa. So I want to pick back up with that because there are a couple of others that maybe we do associate with Africa. Or we don't. So I want to start with eggplant. I didn't realize that that is from Africa.
0: Yeah. Africa has a variety of eggplants. They're a bit more bitter than you find in some Middle Eastern varieties. But African eggplant is highly prized and it's put in stews and dishes and also a lot of times is even um, fixed with okra and um, and African eggplants have come in a variety of shapes. Usually they're round as opposed to a lot of the long skinny ones. When you think of eggplants derived from the Asian region and areas of India. Um, Watermelon is another fruit when people, uh, when people think about crops from Africa. Watermelon from Africa. It's a great um, source of um, of leucopene, which, which are the substance which can help one with digestion. Also helps with fending off prostate cancer. Um, but again, it's known for its flavor. It stores well. People would take watermelons on long trips because it's a good way to carry a form of water. Uh, the seeds in the watermelon plant are also used to stop bedwetting. The seeds are also edible as well. So it's a plant. It's a fruit in which everything is edible in the fruit, and it's from Africa. And there are many varieties of um of watermelon.
1: Well, if we can eat the seeds, are they dried, sort of like pumpkin seeds are?
0: You can dry or you can roast them, and just like you would pumpkin seeds, and you can eat the whole seed shell and all. Um, So there's also other varieties of um, relatives of the watermelon plant that are also found from places in South Africa that are also used. They're not as sweet, but people like them for the water content that's in them.
1: Mm, Sounds yummy. Now, let's talk a little bit about sweet potatoes and yams, because you can't have a holiday here in the United States, especially if you're talking about African-American families. I mean, the tradition is that there's some kind of sweet potato, either it is baked or candied or it's prepared some kind of way. Now, is that the same thing as a yam? And which comes from Africa?
0: Uh, Technically, a yam, um, when we refer to yams from Africa, these are root vegetables, there are roots that grow fairly deep into the, into the ground, and there's a whole variety of, of African yams, and they vary from different parts of Africa. The African yam is, is, is interesting because it was one of the yams that was brought from the, um, Africa to the New World, and it actually grows deeper than some of the yams which are present in, here in the New World. Because of that, it, was a, it grew deeper. It was harder for hogs and pigs to dig them up. And so, a lot of times, most of the yams that you'll find in, in the Caribbean and even some parts of South America, where the, where the African yams were brought over, and they aren't the native yams. Um, but when we think of yams in the South, we're thinking of a, a sweet potato. Sweet potato is technically not a yam. We use the word yam, and it's not a root, it's actually a stem. It's an underground stem called a rhizome. And they're from um, Central and uh, South America, and they're very high in sugar it's a different it's, a, it's again it's a different plant um but they've grown all around the world now um but when but when we african americans we think of yams we're thinking of sweet potatoes the africans think of yams the caribbean people think of yams they're not thinking of sweet potato they're thinking of a of a hard firm starchy fruit almost like a regular potato that takes several months to grow underground sometime even a year year and a half and it's boiled um or it can be roasted and it's cut open and it's eaten with either some type of uh, leafy vegetable, most likely it's eaten with the meat or put in stews. Or you can pound it like the Africans do. They would take it, they would put it in a pounder and they would pound it with, um, with a pistol type device and they would take that, um, pound product and they would heat it and they would um, either boil it, heat it up or boil it, then pound it and it would be eaten with whatever meat or vegetables they had to accompany, um, the product.
1: Wow. You know, every time I have you on the show, you have me hungry. (laughs) But I want to move over and talk a little bit about some of the things that are native here in uh, North America. And let's talk a little bit about Cherokee because we mentioned Cherokee and so many people were really interested in some of the things that you mentioned about that. Now, you were the editor of the Cherokee cookbook called Cherokee Cooking from the Mountains and Gardens. To the Table, and you edited that with the authors Nancy and Tony Plemons. And what was so unique about this cookbook is that Nancy and Tony share recipes, but there is also a tremendous, a great collection of Indian lore that talks both about food and culture, and really how those two things go together, and how storytelling is a part of the culture that talks about their life and food and culture and all of that. So, the principal crop that you shared with us on the last show that is grown by the Native Americans is here in North America is corn. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Corn is a principal crop here in, uh, in, um, in North America. And, it's cher- and the Cherokee word for corn is silu. It comes with, uh, with stories and it comes with a way to prepare it and um, how it's utilized. Corn, when it's produced, as soon as the, um, you get what we call roasting ears, that's when you take the corn and the corn, you'll pull it open, you have what, corn on the cob. That's when the corn is young and tender. Uh, after a while, the corn dries on the plant, and that form of corn is either processed by roasting it, um, and to it's very very hard and firm, and that's called parched corn or crack corn, or the corn is um, taken and ground, and you make cornmeal from it, or the corn is actually taken and put in a container and boiled with um, wood ashes and water, and from that you make hominy, which releases the most um, nutrients from from corn. But for North America, the primary um, grain was corn. As you move down to other parts, it it changed. But um, in any society, you have a hunter-gatherer and you have the um, agricultural. And below the agricultural society, you see hints of the hunting-gatherer. And the Cherokees had a variety of roots they would harvest. And they had a particular clan and the clan was a way of the Cherokee breaking up its division of work and its um, small tribes into divisions which could specialize in those areas. And there's a group called the Wild Potato Clan. And they specialized in hunting those potatoes because as the potatoes or the wild potatoes or those um, root vegetables or we can even in some sense call them uh, yams that were able to allow the Cherokee to deal when times were tough or their corn crop got damaged. And that also helped a lot of the Europeans survive, Europeans survive from knowing some knowledge of the different root vegetables that were available.
1: Well, what was it about the land that made growing corn so successful? I mean, why did that become like the main crop?
0: Corn's a great crop for the simple fact that it has a large variety of different temperatures and climates it can, it can utilize. You can grow corn in a lot more different parts of the world. Then you can grow rice, and then you can grow wheat. And that's one of the advantages of corn. The other advantage of corn, it stores fairly well uh, of some of the other grains out there in the world. So there's no place in the world, particularly most of the large continents, where you don't find corn grown. It's native from North America to Central America, but you find it in North America, Central America, South America. Corn is very popular in Africa. It's also popular in Europe and parts of Russia and and in Asia.
1: But now, you mentioned, though, that the the Cherokees also were hunting for for certain things. But why was stories such a big part of food and culture. You know, it's such a big way that the Native Americans sort of shared their experience. And Tony was an amazing storyteller. I mean, the stories, you would just be, you know, enthralled in what he was telling. And it was always just so fascinating because you did get an inside look, I guess you could say, into the Cherokee culture.
0: Tony Plumings was an incredible storyteller and a tremendous historian about Indian cultures. He was an Iowa Indian, but he knew a tremendous amount about uh, Cherokee culture. His wife, Nancy Plumings, is a full-blood um, Cherokee and had tremendous insight into the Cherokee food cultures and ways. I didn't know of many people, except for some of the other people who worked in the book, like Walker Calhoun, who was the spiritual leader of the Cherokee people that had this tremendous knowledge. And in the cookbook that they wrote... Um, you find tremendous detail about Cherokee culture and food. And there's no other book I know out there that talks more about Cherokee food and gives more detail than the book that they wrote. It's a great source of information. But the reason the culture and the food culture and the history and the myths associated with it work well, because you actually see the, the culture and you see the, the, um, the land and the people come alive. Uh, Whenever you uh, go out there and you hear the stories, you see why these stories came about. You see the significance of the stories and you see why the food is done and prepared the way it is and why this is a principal crop or principal food for the people.
1: Doug, that's so fascinating. I really would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the different clans. So let's stop here, take a break. And when we come back, let's pick up with that. You're on Travel with Anita and Friends. Stay where you are. We'll be back in a moment. to have your favorite food, the majority of travelers will tell you they are planning to try the local foods. But there is a food map that tells us how local that food item may actually be. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. And I'm here with Doc Bill expanding our food map conversation from our last show that included some of the specific foods that we love and enjoy. And just maybe, just maybe, we can find out a little bit more about the places where we think they come from versus where they actually do come from. Now, Dr. Bill, in the last segment, we were talking a little bit about the Cherokee plantings and the Cherokee's way of dividing up sort of the tasks and things like that, their day-to-day lives. So tell us a little bit more about the clan system and how that was set up and what those particular clans were.
0: The clans were a way of keeping order and having the, society, the Cherokee society work very efficiently. There were seven clans. Uh, in the summary, there was the Wild Potato Clan, There was the Deer Clan, the Bird Clan, the Wolf Clan, the uh, Paint Clan, the Long-Haired Clan, and the Blue Clan. And these clans were a way of organizing things. There were ways for society to work more efficiently and and the ways to get specialization within the the group. Blue Clan, for instance, was concerned with uh, disease and uh, medications and ways to treat people um, with those diseases. Uh, So, I mean, you also had uh, within each of the clans an organization as far as people would organize themselves, be involved in the relationships, even marriage between the different clans were also, again, that was involved in the, the clan system. The thing about, Cher- about the Cherokees was they were a highly organized group of people and adopted well to outside influences, primarily a agricultural society, but starting out as a hunter-gatherer society. They're interesting to study because they're the largest group of Indians that are um, east of the, of the Mississippi in difference to the plain Indians who um basically became more and more hunter gatherers as they were able to acquire the horse and able to hunt the buffalo more efficiently.
1: Well what are some of the things that are grown with corn? Because they were growing more than corn, I'm I'm assuming. Well you always hear the
0: story of the three sisters, corn, beans and walnuts, which were grown together and how all those crops help each other. As far as the hunting, I mean, as far as the foraging goes, uh, the Cherokees had a large variety of wild greens. The most cherished of the green was a green called socha, which grew along riverbanks. Uh, ramps, which you think of as wild mountain leeks. Again, that crop itself, the leaves were eaten. And for Cherokees, they only ate the leaves. They never dug up the roots because when you dig the roots up, so you make it harder for the plant to um, exist and you decrease the number of it. So for the Cherokee, uh, it was a sacrilege to have the roots of the ramps. And a lot of times here in this society, you see people have big hands of the roots of the ramps. They don't see that as, they see that as a sacrilege because when their numbers started to grow, the number of um, ramps went down dramatically, and they found in order to make it sustainable, you just gather the leaves, not the roots. Mm.
1: So they were all about uh, sustainability and conservation even earlier on. You mentioned also, too, that corn was also part of the, the food culture in Central America, so Mexico. Let's talk a little bit about Mexico, because Mexican food is a beloved favorite food. I mean, some may call it ethnic food, but it is truly mainstream. Um, So I know Mexican food is more than tacos and burritos. (laughs) So there are so many various herbs, spices, and ingredients that are part of this delicious cuisine.
0: It is, it is, and the thing about Mexican food that makes it so unusual is, again, it's corn, but corn fix a variety of ways. uh, corn plant itself, um, it's a grass, is actually from Mexico. And um, that variety that's, that's there has you know has grown into many, many, many different varieties. You have to also look at what was the influence in that region and part of the world. Historically, the Mayan were a group of people that um, had a, a vast empire. Uh, and it was at its strongest and its highest peak, way before the Europeans even contacted the um, the, um, came to the New World, and by the time the Europeans got there, the empire was in market decline, and the strongest empire at that time were the, um, were the Aztecs, and um, they, they had a variety of, again, a variety of crops came from these societies, chocolate, which we love, vanilla, which we love, uh, again, corn, if we talked about, tomatoes, I mean, uh, chilies, all these crops were, um, a, were a consequence of, of these great civilizations.
1: But, you know, what's interesting, though, I mean, even going back, like with the Cherokee, you know, it's interesting to think about that some of the some of the plants and things that are associated with the Native American uh, food map, you don't find them in the supermarkets or the grocery stores. They're not that much a part of what I would say is just the everyday American cuisine.
0: Well, you don't. Things move and they shift far as some of the leafy green vegetables, which you find in some of these places, they're present in small amounts, and people forage for them, so you're not going to find them. People um, in the European society, they had a lot of systems of large agriculture, so it's easier to bring that crop over, and that's what you usually find in stores and markets. If a crop is utilized here, it's utilized because it it usually fits into a scheme which people already have. But a lot of the things that came out of, um, uh, when you think about Mexican cuisine, is a marriage between the um, Mayan culture which um, brings corn and its products, and uh, Spanish culture, which you bring the rice, you bring the, you, you bring the dairy um, together, and you see that throughout the system. Uh, cilantro, which you see throughout cooking, is actually not from that region, but there's a, there's a lot of other um, native plants which, which can fill that role. Uh, there's an herb called Pepperture, which is from uh, the New World, which again has a similar taste to cilantro, but is a totally different plant.
1: So when you think about the Mexican food, though, uh, as I mentioned, I mean, of course, burritos, tacos, things like that are pretty readily, you know, associated with what people consider to be Mexican food, uh, fast food and things like that. But some Mexican, some dishes in Mexican cuisine actually takes quite a bit of time to prepare. I mean, it's not a it's not a fast food type food culture.
0: Well, most of the stuff in Mexico cooking takes a while to prepare Uh, the predominant use of corn corn normally in, um, in our experience of corn you take the corn and you either roast it and have roasted corn on the cob or you take the corn dry it out and you grind it and make cornmeal from the cornmeal you make bread cornmeal which you love the predominant process in a lot of the new world was they maximized the nutrition of the corn so the corn would go through a process in which the um, outer husk of the corn was removed by soaking it in either lye or um, a limestone product uh, and that reduced that pulled off the outer husk and mobilized Vitamin B6 in the product. And that made a big, big difference. And so from that, we make tortillas, we make masa, and these are used to, um, for tamales or they're used to um, grind and make a flatbread or they're fried and they make tortilla chips.
1: So, Doc Bill, let me ask you about this because I know there is a corn that has a fungus on it that is a culinary delight.
0: Corn, when it grows, a lot of times if the moisture content is at a certain level, and you have natural fungus on the surface of corn, you produce these fungal outgrowths on the corn. And this is highly sought after in some instances, it's actually more valuable than the corn itself. And it's roasted or it's basically can be sauteed and it's eaten even in tamales or it's eaten in um, stuffed enchiladas. And again, it's one of the the benefits of the corn plant itself Um, and it's expensive, uh, but there are certain restaurants during the time of the year, they actually have this product and it's a great product to have.
1: And it's basically just kind of added to things. It's not eaten separately. It's kind of part of a of, of a dish. It's eaten both.
0: It's eaten separately or it's actually um, added to dishes to improve the flavor. But most times it's 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 so sought after it's eaten separately, like most fungi, whether it's mushrooms, that they become the prime star in the dish.
1: <laughs> well, I do love a mushroom. And speaking of which, where are mushrooms from?
0: All over the world. <laughs> and they're up depending on whether they're at each area has its own has has, has its own type of um mushrooms. For the Cherokee, they refer to uh, their most favorite mushroom is a mushroom called slicks. Um, they also love a mushroom they call wishy, which we know is hen of the woods. And, but that same mushroom in Japan is called Mayataki. And you also have those same mushrooms in Africa. Another prominent, very powerful crop that's seen all around the world that's from the new world, from Central and South America, is cassava. Cassava is grown all in Africa, and if you go to most parts of Africa, you would actually think cassava is a native plant, but it's not. It's a root vegetable in which you can pound it and get a starch out of it and use it to make bread, or you can boil it, or you can fry it. The thing about a lot of these root vegetables, a lot of them have to be processed before they can be eaten. Some of them are toxic. If you eat them without being processed, it can kill you. Uh, potatoes is one of the few crops, again, that, um, you know, um, you, you can dig up. And it takes very little cooking or very processing. It just, the boiling of itself makes the, makes the potato quite edible. And again, potatoes, when I'm referring to them, um, are from Peru. They're from the New World. They moved from the New World uh, to Europe as well as Africa. Peanuts is another crop. Peanuts are a crop that's from um, Central and South America and are predominant in Africa now as well as in parts of Europe.
1: Well, I do love a potato prepared any kind of way. (laughs) Let's stop here and take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to Columbia. I'm going to see if Doc Bill can get me set up for what I need to eat when I'm there. Stay put because I'll be back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Do you make a list of things to see and do when traveling to a destination for the first time? Well, my answer is yes. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. I'm heading to Colombia, that's the country of Colombia, for a conference and I've added enough time to pack in some sightseeing and of course, trying some delicious local foods. Now Colombian cuisine is heavily influenced by the diversity of its lush landscape as well as the diversity of its people. Colombia is home to almost 90 different ethnic groups speaking 65 different languages. And from indigenous staple foods like corn and tropical fruits to the African-Colombian hearty meals of beans and stews, eating in Colombia I think is going to be one of the highlights for me. (laughs) I can't wait. And I'm so excited because it also reflects the rich cultural heritage and the history, two things that I like to also check out when I'm in a destination. So, Doc Bill, okay, because I want to check out the food, but I also want to check out kind of how the food and the culture goes together as well.
0: South America is just an incredible place. I mean, again, Going back historically, you look at societies that had influence. You have the mines, Aztecs, but the predominant influence, culture down there were the Aztecs as far as um, influence in that region. They had a tremendous empire. Uh, a lot of crops came from that area. Corn was one of the principal crops, but also um, aramith and quinoa was also an, a crop from that region. But potatoes a tremendous crop that was brought into that area there, as well as the cassava as well. As far as dairy go, there was no dairy. The Spanish were the predominant European influence in that region.
1: So what are some of the particular dishes that I should try? Just to get a feel of the uh, flavor of the of the cities that I'll be in and of the, of the country itself.
0: Arepas is a uh, a corn cake, which is most popular and it's, it has old, old ancient um, lineages that goes back uh, to the time of the Aztec. That's a great, great dish. There's a lot of stews. Uh, one stew is called sancocho and there's many varieties of it, but it's a stew with you would have it with, mixed with corn. There would also be beans in it and whatever they can find locally to put in the dish as well. A variety of meats were in the dish as well. And again, the meats that we eat now are going to probably be pig, goat, and, um, and beef. Uh, you don't see much of the lo- local um, meats unless you are in very, very uh, outreached areas. But, again, those are things that are tried very well. variety of fruits. Uh, sour sap is a fruit that's known as the custard apple family. It's a very, very delicious fruit. Chermoya, there's a whole variety of different fruits and stuff in that area that are that are incredible. Uh, dragon fruit, we say. What's a dragon fruit? Well, dragon fruit is actually not a, from... Um, From Vietnam, it's not from Asia, and it's actually a fruit from South America, which has been rebranded, and we call it dragon fruit. But it's similar um, to prickly pear. It's actually a fruit from the cactus, and it's used a lot in foods and dishes down there as well. A lot of dishes are sweetened with sugar cane and um, cane syrup. But again, cane syrup is not from the new world. It's from the old world, from India and the South Pacific is where those um, crops came from. But again, you have this mixing. You have coastal food. You have mountain food. The influences that have dramatic, and you also have influences from the slave trade in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. which also bring um, uh, their turn and their spin to um, the variety of food you have there.
1: Yeah, definitely some of the stews. But now, what about plantains?
0: Plantains are uh, synonymous with a lot of foods from South America. It's a good starch. They grow very quickly. And they can use as thickeners. But all bananas, um, whether it's plantain or sweet dessert bananas, are not from the New World. They come, they come from the area, of the Indian, the South Pacific region, and were brought there by the Spaniards. But they've been adopted, um, so they figure quite heavily in their foods. Tamales and things that are stuffed, a lot of times they would, they would be stuffed with corn leaf. They use the corn leaf as a wrapping and also use banana leaf as a wrapping. It's wrapped around corn, and again, it's um, steamed or boiled and um, very nutritious is eaten that way.
1: Well, you mentioned sugarcane and I can't uh, have you here on the show and not have you talk about sugarcane because I know that you and your uh, farm partner, Jerome Dixon, have done a lot with bringing purple ribbon sugarcane back into uh, the market and the chefs and, and, and people have been you know, clamoring to get, <laughs> to get the syrup that you all are making from that. So just give me an update on and, and just what you guys are doing with it, but also just maybe go back to the beginning and tell the listeners a little bit about how that whole process came together and why.
0: Sugarcane is a crop from India and the South Pacific area, basically most notable in the world, particularly from the area of the Caribbean. Um, but it was primarily grown because from sugarcane you were able to make rum. And that was the demand because rum was a product that was sold around the world, and also you had the sweet the sweetness that you get from molasses and sugar. The uh, sugar cane project we started, which was a purple ribbon Sugar Cane, on, um, was trying to revive a, a cane that was grown uh, around the 18 early 1800s on the Georgia coast, and it was done with Clemson. It was done through the help of Clemson University with Steve Kreskovic, and myself and Jerome Dixon. And um, we were able to grow the, the um, sugarcane on the mainland side. And once the sugarcane got up to a certain size, we were able to at least produce a good crop on the mainland side. Then we transferred it over to the Sapelo side, where um, we worked with partners of Cornelia Bailey. And from that, we were able to, um, they were able to grow sugarcane on the island. But the original um, group that was involved was myself, Steve Kreskovich, and Dr. David Shields, and Jerome Dixon. And then Cornelia was involved on getting the crop maintained on the um, island side.
1: But what was the association with Sapelo? I mean, why why Sapelo? Why not just grow it on the mainland side?
0: Sapelo was used because at that time there was a a plant uh, plantation owner named Thomas Balding who was an innovator in um, agriculture and he wanted to grow sugarcane because it had because the potential value of the crop and his farm was on Sapelo and the mainland side and and um, at a certain point during the early eighteen um, ten eighteen um, twelve Sapelo was one of the largest sugarcane growing, sugar um, growing regions in the United States and provided a lot of sugar in that area there. And that's the significance of it. So we'll sort of trace the historical steps and, that, and get an idea of what did that original sugarcane syrup and products taste like. And so we were able to produce uh, close to 3,000 bottles of the product and provide some of the um, high-end restaurants in the South to return a crop that at one point had pretty much gone extinct as far as being used in large amounts.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about that whole process, because I I know that you grow the sugar cane, then you harvest it. But the process of making it into, to sugar, uh, into syrup, uh, you can't just kind of do that in your backyard. So what, what is that process?
0: The process is basically one of, um, taking the sugar, um, taking the sugar cane and pressing and getting the sugar cane sap or juice out. And then that's boiled in, um, specialized, uh, vats or through a machine called a constant evaporator. And um, this has to be done under controlled situations. And if you're going to take a product like this and sell it, it has to be done under FDA regulations because problems such as mold getting into the product and harmful substances can, can occur in it, can happen if it's not processed under a, a caring situation. So we used a, a, a guy named Miss Mickey Morrison who, is, who specializes in processing sugarcane. And he was able to produce a very fine sugar through an old process, but a very efficient process called steamed um Uh, evaporation where they use steam to heat up the syrup and boil it. And you don't get a sculching effect and you get a much more smooth tasting, bitter tasting uh, cane syrup. Mm,
1: I know that uh, that, cane serve that you guys produced was very highly sought. So I know that the pandemic really kind of put a halt on a lot of things, not only just in, in, in you know, restaurants and, and travel, but also too in farming and the way that we get our foods. So it was was did that put a pause for you all growing the sugar cane?
0: It did. It was a hard time getting labor, and we decided at this point it's just best to hold off, and at some point we may start up again. But through our projects on Sapelo, we were able to restore, um, or let's say, not restore, but let's say uh, popularize the Sapelo Red Pea, which was a field pea that came out of, um, uh, which the people on the island had preserved. That same pea also existed on Sea Island. And so the Sapelo Island um, Red Pea and the Sea Island Red Pea is in a sense the same pea because those two properties were owned by the same um, plantation owner. But we were able to at least bring back the Sapelo version of it as far as popularizing it so people um, at restaurants had greater access to it. The people on the island enjoyed it for, for decades. Um, So that was one project we were able to popularize. And I also put a better price in it so the farmers that grew it got a higher price for the product they made. And that was done via... A friend of ours named Chef Linton Hopkins down in Atlanta, who's a very famous restaurant tour and uh, and really uh, someone who champions um, local product and in, in this in the um, historical content of saving food and helping preserve cultures.
1: Yeah, I remember that first meeting that you had with uh, with Chef Linton Hopkins, and I always like to say that the Red Pea Project was started over blue crabs, because <laughs> that's what you all really met to talk about.
0: We did, it actually started over um, soft show crabs. And today we still um, enjoy soft show crabs at Chef Linton's restaurants.
1: Absolutely, well good luck with all of that. I mean, you guys have really done a lot to, to revitalize and commercialize also to those crops that definitely helps to sustain the the economy on Sapelo Island. So Doc Bill thank you so much for coming back on because I had so many questions so many people were making comments that they really enjoyed the food maps uh, show that we did last time and they wanted some specifics and you certainly have me set up for Columbia I am taking off soon and I will be trying some of those things that you mentioned so thank you guys for listening in today and if you have more questions about the food map hey I will pass it over to to Dr. Bill because he's the person that can answer it. So thanks for joining me. Come back in two weeks for another great destination and more information about how you can travel and enjoy not only the food, but also culture too. you know Travel with Anita and Friends. Bye-bye. <laughs>